Hello and welcome to Calling All Cars from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. Good morning, Mrs. Happel. 
Oh, a beautiful day for so close to Christmas, isn't it? It certainly is, Mrs. Wyatt. Now, when I think of the cold and storms that we used to have back home at this time of the year, I'm mighty glad I'm living in California. Mm, that's the way my husband and I feel about it, too. But sometimes when it gets kind of cold in the early morning and I start to complain, Alfred will look at me kind of funny and say, How'd you like to be back in Chicago right now where it's seven below? <laughs> that always makes me realize how little I really have to complain about. Yes, I guess that's right. Mm, here comes your husband. Morning, Mr. Happel. Good morning, Mrs. Wyatt. Well, I must be on my way, Mrs. Happel. See you tomorrow. Goodbye. Goodbye, Mrs. Wyatt. Well, Dennis? Now, don't go starting the day off by nagging at me about work. I'm going out and look for a job as soon as I have some coffee. I, I wasn't going to mention that. I don't see why you get the idea that I'm always nagging you. There you are. I can't say much more of it. Is there any coffee on the fire? Well, I think they're sending the pot. We'll have to warm it up. All right. I'll be in just as soon as I finish hanging off these clothes. Yeah, nice household when a man has to do his own cooking. Yeah, not enough coffee here. Yeah. Rose! Rose! What do you want? Where do you keep the coffee? There isn't any left in the pot. Oh, well, well, wait a second, and I'll come in and make you some more. Yeah, you don't have to exert yourself. Just tell me where to find the coffee, and I'll make it myself. I don't mind making it for you, John. Hey, you sit down over there and read the paper, and I'll have some fixed in a minute. <laughs> it ain't funny you being nags about it. You must want something. John, what makes you so disagreeable? Are you feeling all right? Of course I'm feeling all right. Good as I can for you, when you nagging me all the time. Oh, you talk nice in front of people, but I know what you're thinking. I can see by the way you look at me that you think I'm a lazy good-for-nothing. Well, maybe I am. All right, John. Don't get yourself all worked up over it. Read the paper or something until I finish making the coffee. Never mind the coffee. I don't want it now. I'm going out and see if I can find some work. Anything to get away from you. You've got me worried, John. Sometimes I think you're not sane. I'm not sane? That's the last call. That's the only thing you haven't said before. Uh, I might have known you'd think of it sooner or later. I am sane. You're the one that's crazy. You're crazy as a woman. John, John, for heaven's sake, calm down. Your heart won't stand it. My heart won't stand it. I won't stand it. I'm sick and tired of your talk, talk, talk all the time. I won't stand it any longer. Tell you that. I'll think of something, some way to make you keep quiet. John... Please don't go out in such a condition. You're liable to get into trouble. Trouble? You're the biggest trouble I have. I won't have you much longer. You wait. I won't have to listen to you much longer. Just you wait and see. John Happel spends the day looking for employment. Nursing his self-made rage, planning ways of thwarting his wife. And that night, he returns to the bungalow court, enters the house, walks into the bedroom where his wife is under. Is that you, John? Yes. It's me, Rose. You sound tired. Have any luck? I didn't get a job. That's what you mean by luck. Oh, well, maybe things will be better tomorrow. I look as though you could stand a good night's sleep. Rose, could you lend me a dollar? Tonight? Yeah, right now. 
and ordered him to send detectives Ellie Sanderson and R.E. Beast out to the death bungalow to assist in the investigation. This done, Captain Bradley, accompanied by Detectives Colling, Johnson, Brody, and Conway, proceeds to the scene of the crime. This is the place, all right, Colling. All the curiosity seekers have assembled already.
Bradley reaches down and lifts the sheet. Oh, my God. Is that your stepmother? Yes. That's Rose. Oh, my God, how horrible. Identification of the mutilated body completes. The law begins the task of building its case against John Happel. From a barber, they learn... Sure, I'm in North Johnson for a long time. Yeah, I've been out to see him for months. And on December 4th, he's coming to my shop. He's ordered a shave and a haircut. He says he's going up back east to buy a farm. And he's a paying me with a $10 bill. He's a comer from a real big enough to talk a cop. From the teller in the bank where Rose Happel kept a savings account. Why, yes. Mr. Happel came into the bank and presented the check for $491.30, signed by his wife. It closed out her savings account, but the signature looked genuine enough. I gave him the cash without a question. A close inspection of the check in comparison with others, signed by Rose Happel, establishes it as a forgery. In the little shack where the trunk was found, detectives discover the heavy iron bar used to murder the victim. Little by little, the facts forge a chain of evidence which points directly at John Happel. Without his whereabouts, no trace could be found. Then, on December 14th, two weeks after the murder, detectives staked out the death bungalow, take a letter addressed to Happel from the postman, and turn it over to Captain Bradley. It is signed by a person named Meyer and mentions certain business dealings. The letter is postmarked St. James, Missouri. Acting upon this clue, a wire is sent to the chief of police in St. Louis, requesting him to be on the lookout for Happel and giving him a complete description. And in St. Louis, the patrolman Emil Hopkins, reading the name in the police bulletin, recalls the fact that he knows a William Happel, John's brother, who lives in Maxwell, just outside of St. Louis. Suspecting that the wanted John Happel would get in touch with his brother, patrolman Emil Hopkins drives to Maxwell and for two days mingles with the inhabitants. Keeps his ears open for any bit of news of Happel. On the third day, his patience rewarded while he is ordering in the general store. He overhears a couple of farmers state that their old friend, John Happel, has just taken the bus for Arnold. Hopkins intercepts the bus, arrests Happel, and takes him to headquarters in St. Louis. And there, surrounded by several members of the St. Louis Police Department, John Happel amazes his audience with his calm, dispassionate account of the brutal murder. Anyway, that morning we had a fight and... She ran me out of the house with the broom. Kept hitting me on the back with it. Told me to get out and not come back till I had a job. What did you do then? Oh, I went out and thought it over. Then that night I came home and as soon as I saw her, I decided I'd do what I'd said I'd do. So I got a piece of pipe. Where did you get the pipe? Out of the little shed in back where I kept a bunch of stuff. I used to sit out there and think in the daytime. It was the only place where I could get any peace. Anyway, I got the pipe, and when I walked in, she was sitting on the bed, taking off a stocking. So I just reached over and hit her on the head. Then what did you do? Well, I sat down and thought it over and decided I'd better put her somewhere. So I thought of the trunk I had in the house, and I dragged it in and put her in it. Didn't you feel badly about it? Killing Rose? No. She had it coming to her. If I had it to do over again, I wouldn't do any different. She had it coming to her. Continuing in detail, the little thin man makes a complete confession and seems to be actually 
really glad that he's going back to Los Angeles to face trial. Puzzled over his apparent desire to return to the authorities, Chief McCarthy tries to question Apple about it, but receives only the information that he's glad the suspense is over, and that he wants to get back to California where it's warm. So on December 22nd, Deputy George Stallman of the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office arrives in St. Louis, completes the legal procedure of extradition, and starts the trip back to Los Angeles with Apple in custody. Called St. James. Might have passed through it on a bus, but that's all. 
Yet people back there who remember you when you lived there say that you were in St. James on the day that Henry Myers was last seen alive. That you mentioned the fact that you were going out to talk business to him. How about that? I don't know anything about it. I killed Rose, but I don't know anything about Henry Myers. Apple, you want to take that trip all over again? You want to go back in all that cold and face the people you knew in St. James and have them identify you? No. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen if you don't tell us the truth about this. Because we know as well as you do that you killed Henry Myers. We've got letters written by him to your wife talking about the farm. All right, be quiet for a minute and I'll tell you. I can't stand people in agony. I'll tell you. That's more like it. Now, tell us about it. Well, Rose had tried to get him to move off the farm or pay some rent on it for a long time. And he wouldn't do it. Said the farm wasn't worth anything and then he wouldn't get off it. So when I got back there, I thought I'd go and either get some money from him or drive him off. Did you ride on that farm? Yeah. All right, go ahead. Well, I went out to the farm and told him who I was, and he began to tell me all about the trouble he'd had trying to make a living and all that, and I told him I didn't care. And all I wanted was some money or for him to clear out. So what happened? Well, he insisted that he couldn't pay anything and made me mad. I had stopped in a little town and bought a small rifle, and I had it wrapped up in a package. So I... We talked, he sat down on the... We talked, he sat down on the... We talked, he sat down on the bed, and I started to put the bed, and I started to put the gun together. What did he do then? Nothing. Oh, he got a little gun, and I said, yes. I was going to make him get off the property with it. Didn't he try to stop you from putting the gun together? No. He just smiled at me and made me even madder. So I finished assembling the rifle and put a cartridge in it. And when he started to look at me, I pulled the trigger and he fell over backwards. There wasn't any noise or fuss. He just fell down without saying anything. Tell me, Mr. Happel, just what did you think you were going to gain by shooting this man? Gain? Well, I suppose I figured on gaining anything. Only my wife had told him to get off, and now I was telling him to get off, and he wouldn't do it, and it made me mad. So I shot him. On February 11, 1935, John Happel goes to trial before Superior Court Judge Charles W. Frick, pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. But doctors Edwin Waits and Benjamin Blank, after carefully reviewing the case and examining the accused man's mind, declare... I know the man undoubtedly has a twisted twist of precautions and a strange persecution complex. It is the belief of my associate, Dr. Blank, and myself, that Mr. Hepple is not suffering from any form of insanity. After this damaging piece of two days after this damaging piece of testimony, Deputy District Attorney Stallman closes his summary with the words: "There can be no doubt about it. This man, John Heppel, planned the murder of his wife carefully. Knew exactly what he was going to do and did it with willful intent to kill. He's a cunning, strange being. Guilty beyond all doubt of first-degree murder." And on February 15th. 1935. John Hebel, the jury has found you to be guilty of murder in the first degree. 
Before this court passes judgment on you, Anson, have you anything to say? She shouldn't be nagged at me. John Hamble, I sentence you to life imprisonment in San Quentin Penitentiary. Life in the pen? That's fine, Judge. Now I'll have three square meals a day, and nobody can nag at me. That suits me fine, Judge.